You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a senior practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So as Carla said, each month we focus on bringing our members helpful tips on different practice management topics. So I want to take a moment to talk about the importance of staff appreciation. At the end of the day, the most valuable firm asset are your people. 2021 was a tough year, and for many of us, it was a time of reflection. And because it's still January, you still have some time to set a few priorities this year. Um, And so I think that it would be, it would behoove you for your business and for staff morale to take a look at those people that are really supporting you. Um, Before the pandemic, we had all employee meetings at the bar, but because we cannot gather in groups currently, I've decided to uh, have our listeners join us um, and use our podcast to present an award to a member of our department. And that's right. It's Carla Eckhart. She is a tremendous asset to the department as well as to the bar as a whole. And she is the 2022 recipient of the Practice Resource Center Rockstar Award. Congratulations, Carla. I'm in shock. <laughs> For the listeners, I had no idea this was happening. <laughs> and she's and res- Jonathan, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. There you Thank are. You You're very so heavy much. Oh my gosh, this is lovely. Award. We'll take a picture of this and put it up on social media so the listeners just know we're not crazy <laughs> talking about some random award. Thank you so much, Christine. This is beautiful. Uh, my highest compliment for any employee, if you've ever worked for me, is competence. And I would say that Carla Eckhart is the poster girl for competence. So Aww. it's well deserved. Gonna cry. I won't cry. I promise. I won't ruin the episode. But thank you, everyone, for joining us for this beautiful moment. So every year there are updates and changes to some ethics opinions as well as the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And we are very fortunate to have knowledgeable attorneys standing by on the ethics hotline responding to calls from our members. Uh, Because it's a new year, we're going to discuss some of the changes that have recently gone into effect as well as review other important ethics and advertising rules. Returning to the show to discuss the rules is the new director of the Ethics and Advertising Department, Jonathan Grab. Uh, congratulations, yes. Jonathan. Congratulations yes. all around around here today. Woohoo! Another, Thank you very much. Glad an, to be here. Another extremely competent member of the Florida Bar team. Jonathan became the ethics counsel for the Florida Bar last November after serving the ethics and advertising department for eight years as an assistant ethics counsel. Jonathan has fielded more than 20,000 calls on the ethics hotline, reviewed thousands of lawyer advertisements, and issued dozens of staff opinions. Prior to working at the Florida Bar, Jonathan was a senior attorney in the Agency for Persons with Disabilities. Jonathan graduated cum laude from the Florida State University's College of Law in 2008. In his free time, Jonathan enjoys going to the local rock climbing gym with his wife and two daughters. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. 
Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Nice to talk with you again. Oh, and I also heard that um, you're the person to go to for Girl Scout cookies. So if, if I'm asking, <laughs> it's not solicitation. Just wanted to, just wanted to confirm. Well, you know, while, while we're, uh, you know, educating our members on the internal workings of the bar. <laughs> hey, we, we get a lot of really lovely emails from our listeners and they talk about that, you know, they like the show or like the dynamic between Carla and myself. So I, I feel like it's fine for them to get to know us more. Definitely. So. Definitely, definitely. For the rest of you, there will be CLE credits. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jonathan, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your department and when a member should call the ethics hotline? Sure. And so, the ethics and advertising department, uh, we handle the ethics hotline, obviously, um, as you noted earlier. And we take a myriad of ethics questions, which is going to include those advertising rules in uh, subchapter 4-7 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. Um, chapter 4 in general is the rules of professional conduct, the ethics rules. And so anytime a lawyer has a question regarding anything related to the ethics rules, certainly they should feel free to give us a call, even if they think maybe, you know, hey, this would take me 20 minutes to look up myself, mm -hmm. you know, or I could make a five-minute call to the ethics hotline. Please do so. Save yourself that time. That's what we're here for, is to try and save you time, save you resources, um, and get you those answers that you need to those ethical questions, because sometimes the answers are not entirely as clear as you might hope that they are. And there's a lot of difficult issues that lawyers face in the ethics rules, um, ranging from conflicts of interest to confidentiality, um, you know, to, to trial publicity or communications with an unrepresented person. And so anytime a lawyer runs into one of those questions or thinks that the issue might run into one of those questions, they should certainly feel free to give us a call. Uh, they can reach the ethics hotline at 1-800-235-8619. Again, that's 1-800-235-8619. Um, and so that's really a lot of what we do is just literally focus on the ethics rules, giving that advice through the hotline, as well as if we get written inquiries, whether via email or via standard mail. Um, we respond to those in writing. Now, obviously, that takes a bit more time to draft up a response. Um, but yeah, you can get that immediate answer if you want to call into the hotline um, as well. Uh, we also review lawyer advertisements. And so there are certain advertisements that must be reviewed under Rule 4-7.19 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And uh, as I'll get into a little bit further uh, later on in this segment, um, there's exceptions to that filing requirement in Rule 4-7.20. And so, you know, yes, many of the advertisements that you see on TV, on the Internet, uh, many of those have been filed for review with our department. And so one of our lawyers in this department has actually looked at that advertisement and given an opinion about whether or not it complies with the advertising rules. So while, while we're on the topic of reviewing advertisements, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been a change in how members can submit advertisements for review. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So the change hasn't quite occurred yet. This should be in the near future here. Um, there will be an online portal, an online system, where lawyers will be able to submit advertisements for review through the online system and pay for that process through the online system in the near future. Um, that hasn't quite gone live yet, but it should be within, I believe, within the next, uh, you know, half dozen months or so is my understanding. 
And and what are the what are the filing requirements now? Like when you let's say create a website, when a member creates a website, do they file the whole website every single page, or do they just file uh, you know the home page that has you know most of the advertisement language in it? What, what do they file with you? So for the lawyer's own website, that is actually specifically exempt from the filing requirement under 4-7.20. That is one of the exemptions. Now, if it's on someone else's website, you're doing a banner ad or you're doing um, some sort of ad that shows up in social media and it's a promoted or sponsored ad, so it's going out to people who haven't already followed or liked your social media profile, um, then yes, that very likely needs to be filed for review if it includes any non-exempt, non-tombstone content is how they often refer to it. And in that situation, it should be filed at least 20 days prior to the intended use of the advertisement. That gives us time once we receive the advertisement to review within the 15 days that we're allotted, as well as time for it to be mailed back. Um, And yes, we do issue an opinion whether the ad complies or doesn't comply in our determination. We'll issue an opinion that states one way or the other. And if it doesn't comply, then we will state exactly why we think it doesn't comply with the advertising rules. And then the filer has an opportunity to submit a revision. And if they're only submitting changes that are required to comply with what we've told them is an issue under the advertising rules, it'll be the same filing number, won't require a new filing fee. They won't have to restart the process, treating it as a new advertisement. Great. Um, And so when you say the website is exempt, we understand that from the rule. Um, But there has been some confusion, and this appears on a lot of people's homepages, regarding when an attorney uh, makes certain claims about their expertise or past case outcomes. What are Florida lawyers allowed to say about their experience in advertisement and like if they specialize in a particular area of law? So on that point, for their own website, it is still subject to the advertising rules, but it wouldn't need to be filed for review with the Florida Bar. Now, when it comes to what they can say about their own qualifications and expertise, it's really whatever they can objectively verify. Now, there are certain awards that if they're mentioning that potentially would not satisfy the award requirements that are listed in the rules, and this is in Rule 4-7.14, subsection A3, if someone wants to, you know, go ahead and look it up and find the requirements, but it has to be a bona fide organization. It can't be just that you made up, you know, the greatest lawyers in the world (laughs) award and, you know, hey, I just happen to be the first recipient of the greatest lawyers in the world award, you know, greatest lawyer for 2022. And guess what? You know, I'm also being nominated for 2023. (laughs) Um, You know, so yeah, you can't just make up an award. It has to be an award that is actually from a bona fide organization that makes its selections based on objective and uniformly applied criteria and and that it includes among its members or those recognized a reasonable cross-section of the legal community the entity purports to cover. Okay, so that is understandable. And if someone is clearly board certified, they've gone through that whole process with the bar, and so they have, they can say, I'm board certified in marital law or that kind of thing. Was there some change as far as saying I specialize or I'm an expert? They're not board certified. What It gets murkier after that. Can you talk about that a little bit? So that is a relatively recent change. Um, you're correct. They uh, 
have allowed board certification traditionally uh, to allow a lawyer to say that they are a specialist or an expert in a particular area of law. Now, if you're board certified and you identify that, you should indicate that it's board certified by the Florida Bar or whatever other accredited organization, whether by the Florida Bar or the ABA, that is offered that certification. And you have to state the exact area of the certification, the name that the actual certification uses. Now, there is a recent change that would allow a lawyer who isn't board certified to identify as a expert or a specialist. And the catch there is, is that they, again, have to be able to objectively verify that, that criteria, that qualification. If you're going to say you're an expert, then if somebody ultimately then files a complaint saying, no, I don't think this person is an expert that they're claiming to be, you would need to be able to actually prove in court, you know, presumably before a referee, yes, in fact, I meet the criteria. Here's why I can say I'm an expert in this area of law. Wonderful. And I, I do want to pivot a bit um, to something that's quite frequently uh, discussed or brought up uh, in our department, and that is online reviews. So I think in past podcasts, we, we may have talked about uh, Opinion 20-1 and essentially how a lawyer can respond to uh, an online review from a client. Um, but recently, there's uh, been an addition to that sort of theme, and it's Opinion 21-1, which addresses online reviews by third parties or non-clients. So is a Florida attorney permitted to respond to an online review posted by a client or third party, and, and how does it sort of expand upon that original 20-1? So it's only to a fairly limited degree. Um, and the reason I say that is similar to 20-1, 21-1, which addresses uh, uh, reviews by non-clients. You still can't review in, or reveal information from a client in order to respond to those reviews. Um, so just to give a brief uh, uh, background, foundation here, you want to start by looking at the confidentiality rule, 4-1.6 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And absent the client's informed consent, a lawyer may not reveal any information that the lawyer has learned in the client's representation absent one of the exceptions in the rule. Now those exceptions under sub C of 4-1.6 would include that if the lawyer believes disclosure is reasonably necessary, one, to serve the client's interests when the client hasn't told the lawyer not to disclose the information, Two, to establish a claim or defense on behalf of the client in a controversy between the lawyer and the client. Three, to establish a defense to a criminal charge or a civil claim against the lawyer based upon conduct in which the client was involved. Four, to respond to allegations in any proceeding concerning the lawyer's representation. Uh, five, to comply with the rules regulating the Florida Bar generally. And then six, to resolve conflicts and detect conflicts basically when a lawyer is changing between two separate law firms. So as you'll, as you'll note, none of those exceptions include a situation where a lawyer is responding to an online review. They're not, and none of them are going to cleanly address that scenario because you don't need to establish a claim or defense by responding to an online review. You don't need to uh, establish a defense to a civil claim or criminal charge by responding to a client's online review. And there's no proceeding 
So even if you're responding to allegations, there's no proceeding that you're responding to those allegations in. So it's not going to fall under any of those exceptions. So really, the only exception that would apply under the confidentiality rule is if you get the client's informed consent. And to be clear, unlike attorney-client privilege, the evidentiary concept, there is no inadvertent waiver of the confidentiality rule. Even if a client discloses information in that online review, that does not give the lawyer the ability to respond with any additional information. It doesn't open the door to the lawyer to be able to say anything beyond, you know, really, or even acknowledge the truth for the most part of what the client has said, unless the lawyer can get the client's informed consent. And that's really where the key difference between 20-1 and 21-1 comes in. In 20-1, where the client is the one leaving the negative online review, the lawyer really doesn't have any flexibility to get that informed consent of the client. You know, it's almost certain that the client's not going to say, yes, you can respond to my <laughs> negative review about you. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Now, when you're talking about a negative review from a third party, I mean, that would be my first recommendation is that you go to the client and you say, you know, this is what this other party has said about me. And do you give me consent to respond in this fashion? And basically, you want to discuss what you actually propose saying in your response to the client's on re online review. Now, there are still situations where, frankly, even then, it's not appropriate to seek the client's informed consent. You know, say that it would be harmful to the client. The client has a non-disclosure agreement as part of a settlement that they might be violating if the lawyer were to... Uh, be authorized to disclose the response, anything like that. There may be situations where it's still not appropriate even to ask for that informed consent to respond, in which case the lawyer would not be able to reveal any client information um, and shouldn't seek the client's consent. But absent that, if the client is willing to give that informed consent and allow the lawyer to respond, the lawyer may do so for review by a third party. Otherwise, you go back to a very similar analysis to what you were looking at in 20-1, which is to say that the lawyer's response is going to be fairly limited. The lawyer could say, assuming it's accurate, this person is not a client. And the lawyer could further go on to note that as a lawyer, you know, I am constrained by the rules regulating the Florida bar, but I will simply state that it is my belief that the comments made in this review are not accurate. So again, that's similar to what you could say in response to a review by a former client. If again, they're making allegations that are just simply untrue, you can say that you do not believe that they are accurate. I think it's a lot of people don't realize how important um, online reviews are. It, it may be, you know, how you conduct yourself. But like when I'm looking for something, I'm absolutely going to go read someone's reviews if I'm going to watch a movie before I invest an hour and a half of my time. So, of course, I'm going to, you know, do some research on the lawyer. So, um, terrible reviews can make or break your practice now. So, you might want to Google yourself if this hasn't occurred to you before to, like, take a look and see what's out there about you. And I have heard about cases where, like, rival attorneys in a town are putting negative reviews on Google about an attorney. And so, and they have posted, this person is not a client. So, I understand how necessary 211 is. But then you brought up a good point, NDA, uh, uh, NDAs. And I thought, here's my least favorite kind of lawyer advertising. And I think it's actually really effective. A person holding a giant check on a billboard. And it never occurred to me, 
if that person had an NDA, because tons of settlements require that you don't, you know, that you don't discuss the terms of the settlement. So when they're holding up a check with a particular amount, is if they don't identify the source or the particular case, is that is that always allowed? Or has that come up? I wonder if that's come up for you guys. Like someone says, hey, you need to take that down because they weren't allowed to talk about the terms of the settlement. So this gets into the rule for testimonials, um, ah, which is okay. actually going to be rule 4-7.13. And yeah, to go through the full citation, <laughs> 4-7.13 sub B8. Um, that yes, if you were going to have some sort of uh, statement from a client Regarding the lawyer's services, whether again it's an online review or if they, you know, have some little bubble next to their, you know, what they're supposedly saying, you know, holding this check on a billboard, um, that's going to be a testimonial. Um, and yes, if they don't have any sort of statement from the client purportedly, then it would still be a statement of past results, you know, presumably. Um, so it's going to have to be accurate. It is still going to be subject to the advertising rules. Um, but yes, it needs to be that, you know, that is the actual amount that the client recovered, um, that the lawyer can objectively verify that. And yes, if there is some statement from the client, then, you know, the lawyer would have to comply again with that testimonial rule, that 4-7.13 sub B8 as part of that. And among those requirements for a testimonial, you have that it has to be the person making the testimonial's actual experience that it's something that they're qualified to evaluate, that it is representative of what clients of that lawyer or law firm generally experience, that it hasn't been written or drafted by the lawyer, and that the lawyer has not given anything in exchange for that testimonial, and finally, that the person uh, has a disclaimer if there's any statement of past results along with the testimonial, that prospective clients may not receive the same or similar results. And so that's what you're looking at. Anytime that you have a client that, you know, is saying, you know, this lawyer got me X amount of money or this lawyer, um, you know, potentially got me this injunction or, you know, got me acquitted on these charges, you know, that anytime you have that statement from a client where it's appearing in a lawyer's advertisement, then yes, you would need to comply with that testimonial rule. And if it has those results, you need that disclaimer that a prospective client may not receive the same or similar results. Okay. What about can Florida lawyers approach clients and ask them to post online reviews? So yes, to some extent they can. Again, assuming that it's going to be you know, consistent with the client's interests. If you have that NDA, as you were noting, that non-disclosure agreement, then no, it really wouldn't be appropriate for the lawyer to seek that consent because it wouldn't be consistent with the client's interest to make any statement that would violate the settlement agreement, including that non-disclosure clause. Now, on the other hand, if uh, the lawyer, you know, yes, wants to go ahead and ask the client and it wouldn't harm the client's interest and the client gives that informed consent under the confidentiality rule, the lawyer could reveal information, whether it's in the form of a testimonial such as a client review or that past results amount, you know, that the lawyer obtained on behalf of the client. Um, so yes, the, the lawyer could request that, but in doing so, the catch is, is that the lawyer has now adopted that statement as the lawyer's own content or advertising, and now it must comply with the advertising rules. So if the lawyer says, you know, I really could use a better online presence for Google, you know, I'd love it if you could write a Google review for me. 
Um, it seems you, you know, happen to like the services from our office. I'd really like for you to do that. Client says, okay. Lawyer isn't giving anything of value in exchange for the client to say, okay. Lawyer can't offer a discount on services, can't, you know, do anything, again, that would be encouraging the, the client to make that review. But, you know, client just gladly says, you know, I really appreciate it. I would like to re leave a positive review, sure. Well, because the lawyer has requested it, yes, it's going to need to comply with that testimonial rule. And so if the lawyer then finds that the client has left the Google review after the lawyer, after the lawyer has encouraged it and sort of directed the client to do so, you know, explained the process for leaving the review perhaps, well, if it doesn't comply with the advertising rules, what the lawyer needs to do then is actually reach out to the client and ask the client to take that review down. Oh. Because if the client doesn't, then because the lawyer has adopted that content, you know, by requesting it themselves as their own, then potentially the lawyer is responsible if the content violates the advertising rules. And that's the same concerns that the lawyer would need to watch for if, say, the lawyer finds that a client without being asked has left a very positive review and the lawyer would like to reproduce that review on their own website, on their own blog, on their own social media. Again, you need the client's informed consent to be able to do so because even though the client has already posted that information, it's a different thing for the lawyer to repost that information on sources where the client may not even be aware that it's being reposted or republished, so to speak. Um, and again, yes, the lawyer would then have to go through that testimonial analysis in 4-7.13 sub B8 to make sure that what they are reproducing from the client is not only with the client's informed consent, but again, complies with that testimonial rule. You've literally answered all the questions we had about online reviews, so thank you. Yeah, very uh, we're, we're scratching them off as you're just going through them, and it's it's really helpful because we do get a lot of questions about this, and um, this more recent opinion just sort of brought those um, back up. Um, again, another pivot. Uh, we also get this a lot because we have a lot of callers or members that say, I want to retire. And then when we go through the motions, we find out, no, they don't actually want to uh, have a retired status. They don't want to retire from the practice of law. They, they don't just want, want to pay their bar dues. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, they just, they, sometimes they just want to retire from their firm, but they mm -hmm. want to keep an active license because, you know, friends and family may need legal yes. help and who knows. Um, but oftentimes they don't know how to advertise that. You know, when do, do lawyers have to indicate that they are retired? Is it when they officially change their membership status with a bar? Is it when they just deem that they're retired from their law firm, even though they have an active license? How does the advertisement of inactive or retired uh, work? So presumably, if a lawyer truly is looking at retiring as a member of the bar, I mean, at that point, they aren't really going to be interested in advertising their legal services anymore. I mean, that would be the assumption is that once you decide that you are going to retire as a member of the Florida Bar, that no, there will not be any further advertising. Now, you may have situations where, you know, you're speaking in an event or perhaps you want to indicate your status as a retired lawyer, in which case, yes, you would have to clearly indicate, you know, anytime you mention that you ever were a lawyer, that you are now retired, that that is not an active status as a lawyer. Um, so whether that's, you know, saying, you know, retired in parentheses, 
clearly after indicating, you know, the sub uh, subheading or subtitle Esquire, um, then, you know, yes, something to that effect. And it can't be, you know, that you have just a little asterisk and then three pages later in a footnote, you explain <laughs> that that means you're retired. It needs to be, yeah, it needs to be actually reasonably prominent. You know, you have to indicate that clearly. Now, I, I will defer to membership records and their process mm -hmm. for the actual mechanics of retiring from the Florida Bar as a member and what, you know, a retired member can and can't do. Um, because a lot of that is going to be up to them uh, mm -hmm. as far as, you know, their their processes for that. Um, but when it comes to the advertising rules, uh, you know, a lot of times we do have lawyers who, or when it comes to the ethics rules in general, we have lawyers who say, you know, I want to retire, but I want to keep my license. So, you know, what should I do? And there's a couple of different options beyond actually retiring as a member of the bar um, because, yes, if you retire as a member of the bar, it can be fairly onerous to get readmitted then and be able to actively practice again once you have that retired status. Um, so the other options that the lawyer could look at would be, I mean, a lot of lawyers keep their license but just retire from practice. They retire from their individual business or law firm. So, you know, yes, they may be getting retirement benefits, but they haven't actually retired as a member of the bar. They, they keep that active status. They keep paying their dues. They keep doing their CLE. Um, and so, yes, they can actively practice the law, even though they've retired from a particular business. Another alternative that they may want to consider would be going on inactive status. Now, for inactive status, you wouldn't be able to actively practice law in any time you indicate, similar to retirement, that you are a member of the Florida Bar, you would have to clearly also indicate that you were on that inactive status. And this is addressed in Rule 1-3.2 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar, um, subsection B in particular. Um, you wouldn't be able to hold out as being able to practice law in Florida or render advice on matters of Florida law um, if you're on inactive status. Um, and you would also have to, again, affirmatively recognize that you're on inactive status anytime you mention that you're a lawyer. Um, there's a, a variety of other requirements there, um, but one that I would note is that, you know, yes, you have to pay membership fees, but I believe it's about half of what the normal annual dues would be, um, but you are exempt from the CLE requirements. So you can stay on inactive status and then potentially, you know, not have to worry about that CLE requirement. You pay a little bit less in bar dues, and then one day when you decide you're ready to go back into the active practice of law, the catch is, is that, yes, you would have to catch up on any of those missed CLE requirements that you uh, potentially had during your period of inactivity as a member. Um, but at least you would have saved, you know, that bit of money on, you know, being an inactive member rather than paying the full dues as an active member of the bar. And pay attention to if you have if you're thinking about this, make sure you reach out to membership records because there are some time periods where after if you've stayed in one of those statuses too long, um, do you want to take the bar exam again just so that you can give advice to your friends and neighbors? <laughs> yeah. So look at those deadlines. And I do have a question. You mentioned earlier that when you're inactive or retired from the bar uh, that you can't give legal advice. You're, you're ineligible to practice law. And we know that we see that on member profiles all the time. Um, but at, at what point do you consider legal advice? Let's say an inactive or retired member gets invited uh, to speak on a particular area of law at some event. Oh. Uh, 
and they're putting on a presentation and they're inactive or retired, um, how how do they advertise that ahead of the presentation or during the presentation? Is it the same thing? Do they have to just put inactive member? But, they're, but then they're but if presenting they're giving legal advice, right? Huh. So okay. what in that scenario? How would you handle that? How would you answer that question? Well, very carefully, I would say. <laughs> I mean, that you know that that's really you know the issue is that you know anyone can give an educational presentation, um, but when you're giving that individualized advice. Um, you know, say somebody in the seminar raises their hand and says, you know, I'm currently going through a divorce, you know, you're presenting on family law issues. Um, you know, I, I really don't understand these required disclosures that I have to make. You know, what do I need to disclose? Uh, do I need to disclose that I have this, you know, business that I have that I haven't really made any money off of for the last three years? Um, you know, what are, what are the initial disclosures that I need to make? Well, if the lawyer answers that question, or sorry, if the inactive member at that point or retired member answers that question, that's likely to be the practice of law because now they're giving a person individualized legal advice for their specific circumstances. Now, I, I will say, you know, again, part of the reason I hesitate there and, you know, say very carefully is because the Florida Bar and the really the Florida Supreme Court, more accurately, has so far declined to give a specific definition for the practice of law. And, you know, again, this is going to be one of those things where I, for, you know, significant part would defer to the unlicensed practice of law department for when a non-lawyer or an inactive member even, you know, would cross that line, you know, what is going to be considered the prohibited practice of law while they were, are on that inactive status or retired status or potentially, you know, are not ever or ever were a member of the Florida bar. Um, because, you know, yeah, there really isn't that precise definition. Yeah, lawyers being lawyers always find the gray area. And, and so, that's why I asked. <laughs> yeah, I well, mean. And that's why we're grateful for the good working relationship that our department has with your department. Like literally when we had your predecessor on, she didn't know the hotline number because she did never call herself. <laughs> we know your number by heart. I can say it in my sleep. 235 <laughs> So because like we will – when someone calls in, we're talking about practice management or technology, invariably they'll ask us something and we know that a rule pertains to this area. We will read the rule to them and we will tell them where to find it. Then they want to get into the, the gray area and we immediately say, <laughs> nope, we do not interpret the rules. We're transferring you up to ethics. But I don't need an interpretation. Yeah, I don't, I'm not asking that. <laughs> but here's the thing. So can, if someone is inactive or retired um, from the practice of law in Florida, um, are they allowed to still call the ethics hotline? Because Elizabeth would always talk about it has to be your a future, you know, advice about a future act and all these, you know, yeah. they have to be a member. Your so contemplated future conduct. Yes, yes. <laughs> so can inactive or retired Florida, uh, Florida lawyers call you? Technically, no. No, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, as a practical matter, they aren't going to get a full opinion. Now, okay. you know, are we going to tell them, you know, nope, sorry, ending conversation. No, we're not going to do that. Um, but yes, to get an ethics opinion, you are supposed to be a member of the Florida Bar in good standing. And what that really means, again, is a member who's active, not on inactive status, a member, you know, again, who uh, is not, you know, currently subject to some sort of suspension uh, or other discipline. And yes, it needs to be regarding their own proposed future conduct. Now, if someone calls in, um, you know, say, again, it's that inactive member 
Um, and they're asking, hey, is this something I can do? You know, certainly we're happy to try and put them in contact with someone here at the bar uh, to the extent there is such a person, you know, someone at the bar who can try and give them that assistance that they're looking for, or at least give them some direction. And we will, you know, happily give authorities that we may have that might be relevant to that. But again, no, we're not going to be able to give you an actual uh, opinion. We're not going to be able to give you specific guidance to say, here's what you need to be doing, or here are the issues that you specifically need to watch for. Because again, it's not their own proposed future conduct as a member in good standing. And frankly, you know, again, if they're on that inactive status or they're a retired member, then our rules really shouldn't be applicable to their conduct in the same way. Because you know, if you're running into confidentiality issues or conflict of interest issues regarding your own proposed future conduct as an inactive member or retired member, odds are you're probably engaging in conduct that you really shouldn't be, you know, as a, you know, non-member in good standing. Now, it is possible, certainly, you know, that an inactive member may have questions about confidentiality from information they learned while they were an active member or that a retired member may run into the same scenario. In which case, you know, absolutely, yes, give us a call. You know, even though technically you're not a member in good standing, we are going to try and help you out and give you that advice um, because it would fall under the ethics rules in that scenario. Yeah, and that's, you mentioned the other departments, you know, and so we're always, when we get these multi-part questions, we're trying to figure out who's the best person for you to talk to at the bar. This is a real one we got last week. A woman said she left her firm. She was going to go practice on her own. Her old firm kept her on the website and the letterhead, her name, retired. She asked them to take that off. They said, no, you retired from our firm. That was kind of a, a head scratcher. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, she went straight to ethics, but I was right. like, ah. Yeah. So is she, if if there, does she report them to ACAP? Does she, you know what I mean? It was such a multi-part thing. What was the situation? What would you recommend if you got that call? I, for something like that, honestly, I would suggest that they probably want to talk to ACAP. And the mm-hmm. reason I say that is that ACAP, they don't just do the intake for complaints. And for anyone who's listening and not familiar with the acronym, ACAP is the Attorney Consumer Assistance Program. They're within lawyer regulation. And yes, they do the intake for the complaints, but they also you know, potentially try to resolve issues uh, prior to the formal complaint process. And so, you know, yes, a lot of times, even if they aren't necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily something that they intend to file a complaint about or to seek discipline about, um, they may still offer some sort of, you know, guidance or they may offer some sort of uh, uh, assistance in some way, you know, uh, basically contacting, you know, that law firm. If, again, it's determined that that law firm has, in fact, violated the ethics rules or violated the advertising rules, you know, again, which are in the ethics rules, by, you know, indicating that this person is, you know, retired, so to speak, or, you know, was affiliated with their firm, and that person is objecting to that, it's very possible that they may, you know, contact that law firm and just basically say, you know, look, we really don't want this to be a bigger problem than it is. Um, Can you just, you know, remove this information from your website? And hopefully, you know, that'll be the end of it. Now, whether or not that would be what they seek to do in this individual case, you know, based on the circumstances you're talking about, that's up to their discretion. You know, maybe it's possible that they would see something like that and say either, you know, nope, we don't think this is a violation. It is technically accurate. You know, we're not going to actually seek any sanctions at all or process it further. Or on the alternative, maybe we think this is a violation and we're going to actually seek discipline based on this or diversionary program or what have you. 
I mean, again, that's within their discretion based on the specific context that they're looking at for that specific case. And thank you for that. And I know Christine wanted to title this podcast New Year, New Rules, but I feel like we're, <laughs> we're reviewing a lot of important rules. And, and, I, and the pandemic certainly has brought up a few unique situations, um, one of them being interstate law firms. Uh, I recently got a few calls, unrelated, um, of out-of-state firms just calling and saying, hey, I want to open a, an office in Florida. Um, they have no Florida partner attorney if, and, you know, involved in the process at the moment. They just, I guess, because everyone's now moving to Florida, uh, I don't know. They just thought it'd be a good idea that they could just bust into Florida and open an office. Um, but can you speak a little about the requirements for out-of-state firms uh, wanting to come into the market, the legal market in Florida and, and open a practice and whether or not uh, they can call the ethics hotline, because that's always sort of been the caveat. I'm like, well, do you have a Florida bar member that's, you know, a partner of the firm that can contact the ethics hotline? And they always say, well, no. Uh, so can an out-of-state lawyer uh, seeking to open a Florida law firm contact the ethics hotline? And, and what are those requirements? Oh, and we do offer up all of your very helpful ethics informational packets. Yes, to these, but it's these become parties. a popular yes. topic. Yes. So I had to ask. He's on mm -hmm. the phone. We have to ask. <laughs> For interstate law firms, um, what you really need is, again, it's an interstate law firm. You can't just have an out-of-state firm that reaches out to Florida and says, you know, hey, we're going to set up an office here. Um, in the situation you indicated, they did not have a Florida partner. And as you'll see in the interstate law firm packet, which, yes, is available on the Florida Bar's website, um, there is a series of ethics opinions, um, as well as citations to a couple of cases that are included in those ethics opinions uh, that recognize you need to have that Florida lawyer who is a partner within the interstate law firm and who shares in the profits and losses of all of the offices. And so it, you can't just say, okay, we're going to have a separate entity, the subsidiary that we're creating for the Florida operation of our law firm, and that Florida partner is going to own you know, most of that subsidiary or a small portion of that subsidiary. But no, they're not going to get any money from our New York office or our Illinois office or, you know, Wisconsin or wherever it may be. That would be, you know, really not a bona fide interstate law firm, as you'll see from the information in that packet. So yes, they need that Florida lawyer who receives the profits and losses of all of the offices, who is a bona fide partner, actually has an ownership interest. It can't be uh, this sort of non-equity partner, Florida law defines a partner as someone who actually has an ownership interest. So a non-equity partner is really kind of a misnomer under our rules. And then they have to be responsible for the oversight of that Florida office and the legal services rendered by that Florida office. And so, you know, no, you can't just say, hey, we'd really like to open up uh, an office in Florida we're an out-of-state firm, but, you know, we figure we'd like to get in on the Florida business and see what we can do. We'll hire some Florida lawyers, you know, but, you know, really we're going to be making the money from this. That's not the way it's going to work. Yeah, we get calls from the other side. Um, I just graduated and I passed the bar, still waiting on my bar membership, but this out-of-state firm is setting me up in an office. <laughs> that I've gotten that call probably Definitely. four times. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, certainly. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that does come up quite often where, you know, yes, you've got somebody who – they're just looking for work. They're looking to get started in their practice, and they get an offer that seems too good to be true, and unfortunately, it too often is. 
that it's really this out-of-state law firm that's trying to circumvent the Florida rules, and they're hoping that this Florida lawyer, you know, newly minted Florida lawyer, is going to be their, their in, their way to get into that Florida market, and really all it's going to do is get that Florida lawyer in particular in trouble. So we've talked about a whole range of topics. Are there any, there's so many, we purposely did not bring up the ones that are proposed or waiting for the Supreme Court to decide on or open for discussion because there's this whole lifespan of something that go, you know, the ethics opinions and the rules go through. But are there any other rules or opinions that you're getting a lot of calls about or you just really need our members to know about um, that you want to bring to their attention? One thing I actually wanted to hit on uh, before moving on from the interstate law firm issue is uh, there is actually uh, a recent UPL opinion, unlicensed practice of law opinion, um, that I, again, I'm going to defer to you know Jeff Picker and the UPL department for how that's interpreted and applied. Um, but generally speaking, it would allow an out-of-state lawyer who is practicing remotely uh, and not yeah. offering any services in Florida or to Florida residents um, to, you know, yes, offer those services to that remote law firm in that other state, as long as, again, they are not trying to hold out as a lawyer in Florida, they're not practicing Florida law. Now, again, I'm going to defer to, you know, the UPL department about the specifics of that. And, uh, you know, hopefully I've accurately described everything that is indicated in that opinion. Um, but yes, they have said that, you know, simply a person uh, being physically in the state of Florida but where they're teleworking, you know, they're practicing remotely, um, does not constitute UPL, again, provided that they are not doing anything to render services in Florida for Florida residents or under Florida law. I'm glad you brought that up. I've gotten that call at least three times. And and it's mm -hmm. absolutely relevant. Again, the pandemic has changed how everyone is working across the country. So to know that out-of-state lawyers are protected. At their beach houses with yeah, their laptops. and then they can still they can still work <laughs> yeah. without having to worry about the Florida bar coming after them for UPL, mm-hmm. uh, unlicensed practice of law. We keep using acronyms. Yes. Um <laughs> th- you know that that's really helpful and and we'll link to whatever information we can find for our listeners. Uh, we'll be sure to look that up and make sure we link to it in uh, the description below. So the sort of last question, we, we always want to engage our members, not just educating them on the inner workings of the bar, but also uh, have them participate. So where can our members go to find proposed rule amendments or proposed advisory opinions, and how can they participate in the comment process? Sure. So the best place to start, of course, is going to be the Florida Bar's website. Um, if you go to floridabar.org, at the very top, of the Florida Bar's website, you'll see a link for rules, ethics, and professionalism. And if you go to that link, on the left, you'll see rules and standards. In the center, you'll see a link for ethics. And on the right, you'll see the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism. Um, just as a side note, I, you know, uh, Rebecca Bandy, the director of the Center for Professionalism, uh, the staff director here within the Florida Bar, uh, she has all sorts of excellent resources in there, so I would encourage uh, any lawyers who are just looking into professionalism issues in general um, to look to that resource. Um, it has a lot of good practice tips, um, similar to what you know you offer through Legal Fuel, um, just about maintaining uh, those positive relationships and not letting someone else's uh, practice issues potentially interfere with your actions or with your professional uh, appearance and conduct. Um, Now, if you go to rules on the left, 
you'll see uh, a variety of uh, options there, including the rules regulating the Florida Bar. And that will have a copy of the actual rules themselves. Um, and so that's how you can get to the actual rules, the ethics rules um, in particular, which are chapter four of the rules regulating the Florida Bar, the rules of professional conduct. Um, and if you go to ethics in the center of that page is where you'll see, uh, again, links to the ethics opinions. You can search them by subject index. You can search them by just content. You know, if you choose the option to search ethics opinions, you can list them by number. Um, and you can get the ethics inquiry form as well as contact information for the ethics hotline. And that's where you find proposed advisory opinions. That's actually the first link on the page there. Um, and so if you go to that proposed advisory opinions, uh, right now you'll see actually the only content there is 21-1, which we actually need to update because it is no longer a proposed advisory right. opinion. It is now actually <laughs> final. Um, so yes, it is actually, uh, that is where you would go for that information. We don't currently have any proposed advisory opinions pending, um, but that is where you would find that information. And and I just want for our members' sake, if you, I, I know the Bar News frequently puts out information about all kinds of proposed rule amendments and proposed advisory opinions. Um, if you have any questions whatsoever about when these rules may or may not take effect, if they were approved or not. Um, that's why you contact the ethics hotline. We're here to help. We're not here to try and, you know, get you in a gotcha moment and get you in trouble. Um, legal Fuel and the ethics hotline, we're all about sort of that preemptive uh, assistance as opposed to, for example, lawyer discipline, which at that point, it's already too late. So we're here to help. So it's, again, the ethics hotline, 800-235-8619. Um, Give them a call. They will tell you whether a proposed advisory opinion is final or whether a rule amendment has been approved. Um, because, again, I, we realize that the bar website has a lot of information. Um, and like uh, Jonathan mentioned early on, save yourself the 20 minutes of digging through and just give us a call. We, we'd be happy to point you in the right direction. Absolutely. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Jonathan Grab, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbrey. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.